Welcome to the Preacher's Podcast. We are beginning a new series today called Hard Truth. We're following Jesus in Luke's gospel as he makes his way resolutely to Jerusalem. As he makes this journey to cross and resurrection, we notice how Jesus does not pull any punches when he's talking about life and death and discipleship, really about anything and everything related to following him. Some of these things we call hard sayings of Jesus, and in the course of this series, we'll be listening to some of these hard sayings and to related sections of scripture that echo or expand on those hard truths. Jesus will be challenging us as preachers to listen to these words, to wrestle with them, and through us, he'll be challenging our listeners to do the same. And of course, it's all out of love for us. Jesus wants us to take up our crosses and follow him so that we too can share in his crown. So today we're thinking about the reading for the Sunday that falls on or between August 14th and 20th. We're in year C, so we're working with proper 15. And the theme tying the readings together this week in this Hard Truth series is, We Want Peace, But God's Word Divides. Just a quick introduction. I'm John Mitchell from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. Uh, let's meet our preachers for this series. With us is Pastor Ben Tomzak, who serves Bethel Lutheran Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Pastor John Bergman, serving Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Downers Grove, Illinois. Also with us today is Tom Cuck. Uh, as we record this, Tom is still serving at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, teaching education and Old Testament and heading up Grow in Grace. Uh, but by the time most listeners will hear this, Tom will be serving as pastor of Atonement Lutheran Church in Milwaukee. But uh, thanks to all of you for being on the podcast today. Um, before we get into this new series, um, I thought it, just a quick reminder might be in place of kind of the purpose and format of the Preacher's Podcast. This is meant to feel kind of like a circuit meeting where brother pastors discuss an upcoming sermon text. So the idea is guys come to the meeting already having done their text study, and then they go back and forth and share and talk about what they've learned from the text, their ideas, even if they're just kind of informative stages about preaching the text. So we're not trying to replace the text study. We're counting on preachers to have done that work on their own. The podcast rather is meant to help preachers with the next steps. Um, things like, you know, focusing You've got all this information you've learned in the text study, narrowing it down, identifying the main thought of the text, preaching law and gospel from the text, um, appropriation application truths, maybe illustrations or applications and theme ideas we get into. Getting the mental gears turning is how I think of it. So basically, we hope preachers will hear something that will spark further thoughts and ideas, something to help just a little with the joyful work of proclaiming God's word to God's people. So now to the theme for this Sunday, the first Sunday in this Hard Truth series. We want peace, but God's word divides. It's certainly true that we have peace with God through Jesus. That peace is solid and secure. But the peace being referred to in today's theme is not that peace. Rather, it's thinking of the lack of conflict with other people. Jesus tells us the hard truth that that kind of peaceful coexistence is simply not going to happen, at least not consistently in this world. Why not? Because when we follow him loyally, we will inevitably have conflict with people who do not follow him. 
We live in love toward all people, absolutely. As the apostle says, as much as it depends on us, we live in peace with all others. But sometimes we have to stay loyal to Jesus and his word, and that means being in conflict with those who don't follow him. And sometimes, painfully, that's people close to us. Yet we'll also hear that he gives us the strength to endure such conflict and continue to follow him. So before I, I say too much here, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder. Let's go to uh, Ben Tomzak. Uh, ben, could you give us a quick summary of the scripture readings for today? Uh, we'll be focusing on Hebrews 12 for the sermon text. So maybe could you highlight especially the first reading and gospel for today? Absolutely, John. Um, you said uh, it, we won't consistently have peace. And when you read these lessons, it almost seems like we'll never have peace. Uh, Jesus says not just a hard word, but just an impossible to desire to hear word. I've come to bring fire on the earth. And then he says, I wish it were already kindled. He's, he's, he's not only telling us, don't be surprised when these things happen. He, he says, I want it to happen. I need it to happen. I, and, and that just, it kind of blows our minds, but he's, he drives in, into our heads that this is not some abstract kind of, um, you know, mental disorder. This isn't just about, you know, you're divide in your mind like Luther, am I the only one? This is, this is a warfare that gets into the home. It's, it's personal. It's, it's even stronger than if someone puts a frowny face on your Facebook post, which that's disconcerting all on its own. But I mean, families are divided. And, and um, when you look at this section, he said, our series really starts at Luke 951, when he turns his face to Jerusalem. And I kind of did some back of the envelope counting, and I found at least six examples of exactly what Jesus said between 951 and here. Um, it starts with the Samaritans who don't welcome them. And uh, then uh, he speaks some hard words to guys begging to follow him. And he says, no, let the dead bury their dead. So he, he himself seems to cause the division, not just incidentally by, well, my words kind of drive people away like the, the bread of life sermon, but he drives people away. He sends out the 72 says, these are, you're like lambs among wolves. Um, he's almost predicting the failures and, and battles. He goes into Mary and Martha's home. And now he pits sister against sister. Um, Mary wants to hear the word. Martha wants to work. And they're, they're at each other's throats because of Jesus. Um, then a crowd accuses him of healing by means of Beelzebub. And, and on top of it, he goes into someone's home. And what does he do? He talks to religion in a pretty mean way. He starts uh, tearing down the Pharisees. And when a teacher of the law says, wait, are, you're lumping us in and, and saying we're bad too. And he says, yeah, yes, you weigh people down and you won't help them. You kill prophets. So we, we see this division in, in action and it's just, it's just devastating. And, and by the time you get to chapter 12, Jesus, he, he's trying to solve the, the dilemma for them by talking about just, he's laying it out there, forewarned his forearm. There's the yeast of the Pharisees. You're going to have to acknowledge the sun in a world that doesn't want you to. You can't be a rich fool. You can't be worrying about everything. Don't run after wealth. You got to be, you got to be ready for all this stuff. It's like there's no gospel. Except he has been saying the whole time too, um, you, you're going to confess the sun in all of this. The, the devil will destroy you. Or he'll try to, but he can't. The, the, the devil can't kill your soul, but the father will not forget you. As you confess me among all the fire and fury of families divided, I will remember you. And that's his, brings him into his big conclusion that this is, this is going to be bad, but the Father will not forget you. Uh, and, and that ties in really well with Jeremiah, where, where in that whole 23rd chapter, God is just, just crushing on the, the, the preachers and teachers of, of Jeremiah's time. You guys are the worst. 
and he promises punishment for these bad shepherds. He calls them godless. The prophets and priests are godless. You're dividing the church, he says to these teachers, with your worship of Baal and, and your adultery. And then he calls for division. Again, it's God in so many words now telling his people, stop following those bad prophets. So he calls for this division that's come about by their actions. Um, and then we can actually get to the words of Jeremiah 23. He says, I'm right here. I, I'm, I, I see everything. I hear everything. I am everywhere. And you bad teachers are seeking to divide people from me. Well, go ahead and try it. Because my word will burn you. My word will crush you like the hammer that it is. And again, you're saying, where's any kind of hope? Where's any kind of comfort? And, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, John Bergman's going to say, well, it's in Hebrews. It's in Hebrews. And it is. But, but in Jeremiah, God had said, I'm going to do some things. I'm going to gather my sheep. I'm going to send some good shepherds. And I'm going to raise up David, the righteous one, your righteousness. So, I mean, really, you've got to see these whole chapters to see that this division, which God brings by his word, is a division God also solves with his word. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, you're right. These, these hard sayings of Jesus, um, he means them to be hard. Um, thanks for tracing that back to that beginning of the, the travel narrative, 951 of Luke, all the way through here. Context to Jeremiah. Well, John Bergman, let's go to you then uh, to get us started on our appointed text for the week, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 13. Um yeah, get us started as we think about preaching this text, how it fits into the other readings, the things you want to highlight um, as we uh, think about communicating the message of this text to our people. I'll just turn it over to you, highlight what you would like to to, to help us get the wheels turning. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, ben alluded to it a little bit. You, you read that Jeremiah reading, the, the gospel that, that Jesus says in Luke, and you kind of go, wow heavy theme too, talking about division and, and not peace. And then uh, yes, you get to this text from Hebrews and to use a very deep insight to describe this text, wow, what a text of encouragement, even though it's tough. And it begins with that first word, therefore. So therefore, well, as we know, that's pointing to something that went before it. And it's essentially pointing to all of Hebrews 11, that great chapter of those heroes of faith. And when we get to Hebrews 12, it's almost like the high point of a coach grabbing his players before the game. They're a little bit scared. They're not sure they're going to be up for this uh, challenge. And he gives them this pep talk. And in Hebrews 12, we're walking in right kind of at the climax of that pep talk. You remember what before it, he, he talked about all these heroes who went before us. He talked about how, oh my, some of them were, were sawed in half. Um, <laughs> they went to death, just all these incredible things. And now it's like they're passing the baton to us. Whoa, kind of puts things into perspective. Um, you know, I'll, I'll admit that I, maybe you do too, tend to whine and complain about my lot in life. And Hebrews 11 helps to put that into perspective. And then Hebrews 12 helps me focus my eyes on where I need to be, not on myself, but on him who's going to be with me through all of it. So kind of a really interesting place to start the text, therefore, but you have to keep Hebrews 11, I think, really in context of all those heroes of faith. And now it's our turn, by God's grace, to run this race too. Maybe just a few introductory thoughts on that. 
Yeah, great. I think that that sets it up for us. Uh, what a beautiful section of such powerful encouragement. Um, uh, Tom Cuck, why don't we go to you? Can you highlight a few thoughts for us and maybe think of things that you've highlighted as you've preached this text uh, and taught it over the years? Um, what are some things that preachers could bring out in this beautiful text of encouragement? Yeah, first of all, nice thoughts, uh, both of you guys, Ben and John, but uh, highlight what John just said, the, the word therefore at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. It's a really unusual word. It's not the typical word for therefore. And so it really does kind of get, you know, grab our attention and say, you got to look back. You got to look back at chapter 11 to get chapter 12. And so just to, to highlight that. Um, one of the things that struck me was how so many of the main verbs in this text and, and quite a few of the participles too uh, are present tense. Um, there's just the, an ongoing uh, activity of this, an ongoing aspect to this. You know, for example, right off in verse one, uh, let us run uh, with perseverance the, the, the agony which is out in front of us, the contest which is out in front of us. It's the, the Greek word agona, which is get our English word agony from that, um, that it's an ongoing thing. Just a reminder that for the believer in Jesus, we, we struggle under the cross and that we live under the cross and that the glory is coming, but right now it's the time of the cross. And uh, to, to just realize this is an ongoing battle. It's not something I'm going to win today and not have to think about tomorrow. I'm going to have to fight it today. I'm going to fight it tomorrow. I'm going to fight it next week, next month, next year. Thank God, God will keep on strengthening me. But those present tenses just kind of kind of jumped out at me. There are certainly some perfect tenses which are of interest and some aorists and stuff too, but the, the present tenses were the ones that kind of kind of grabbed me. There are a couple of exegetical questions in this uh, this text. One of them is in, in verse two, um, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Um, that the, the way that I think I have generally thought about this is that, um, is that Jesus looked past the cross and looked to the crown, that he looked past the cross and looked to the resurrection and the ascension and the session at the right hand of God and the ruling all things for the good of his church and the, the gathering of all the saints to heaven. And that's why he was willing to endure the cross. There is another way it can be understood. I don't prefer this, but it can be understood that um, in place of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In, in that kind of an understanding would be that Jesus, although he had perfect joy and had all things under his control, said, you know what? I'll set all that aside so that I can endure the cross. I'll scorn the shame of that thing. Now, they're not antithetical to each other. They kind of go hand in hand. I prefer the former because the, the feel of the, the whole flow of this text is God talking to uh, his people saying, you got tough stuff in front of you. But remember what Jesus did. He saw the tough stuff in front of him, the cross. But because he knew there was glory coming, he kept on going. And you can do the exact same thing. Yeah, you got tough stuff happening right now. But man, there is glory coming. So I really prefer the former, that, uh, that he, uh, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But the other we'd have to admit is, uh, is, is acceptable as, uh, as well. Um, the other one comes up in, uh, in verse, uh, I I verse, four, verse 4. 
Uh, was that when we were going to highlight? Yeah, yeah. Um, the the question of the the prastan hamartian. What is that reference? Um, is God talking to His people and saying, you know, in your fight against your own sin, um, you haven't put up as much resistance as you need to? That is a possibility. I prefer a second possibility, and that is that in your fight against uh, the sin which is being brought against you, in other words, that in your, your fight against persecution, you haven't yet had to endure bloodshed. I do think that's the, 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 the thought that I would prefer as we think about this, uh, this text. But uh, yeah, those are a couple of thoughts. I'll stop there. Yeah, maybe to those two uh, exegetical points that Tom raised, um, Ben or John, do you have any any thoughts in response or what um, uh, responses do you have to those possibilities that uh, have been laid out for us, possible interpretations? Do you favor one over the other in either of those cases? Um, no, I, you can see the, you can argue back and forth on both of them. I'll, I'll, I'll let Ben chime in in a moment, just on... On verse two, when we talk about for the joy set before him, I, I love the gospel thoughts that could be included there. You know, for the joy set before him, he did all this. Well, what was that joy? Certainly, he would have joy going back to heaven to be with his heavenly father, having joy completed the mission he was sent for. But then this is just a mind-blowing thought of grace. What, what was he really so filled with joy at to go through a cross saving me? <laughs> could it be me? I mean, that's astounding that his heart was so filled with joy at the thought that he would have a relationship with me, <laughs> that, that is grace upon grace. You know, we, we endure difficult things to get relationships with people. We do. When I was uh, dating or courting my wife once upon a time, I drove to New Ulm in the winter. Um, I spent all kinds of money trying to take her on dates, trying to get her to like me. Well, in the end, I'd have a lot of joy because she would make my life a lot better. <laughs> okay, I was willing to endure that. But Jesus looks out at me and he knows all of the sin that so easily entangles and lives in me. I have nothing to contribute to him. And he says it would give me nothing but joy to live and die and clean him and, and have him live with me forever. That is grace. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for those thoughts. Um, so that's that's an angle to look at it, um, uh, and bringing out gospel thoughts there. That Jesus is so driven by love for us, uh, and that gives him so much joy, saving us that that impels him forward even to the cross. Um, other other thoughts related to that, uh, Tom. Yeah, and I, I love your thoughts there, John. Those are excellent. I I would put out that. I, uh, point out that I think you can come to the same conclusions if you take the text the other way, who uh, in place of the joy set before him endured the cross, scoring its shame. In other words, Jesus, the ruler of all things, was willing to do what? Come to this earth. And why? Because he loves an idiot like me, one who he knew was going to mess up so badly and so often, and yet he set aside the joy and, and came. I prefer your interpretation. I like it better. But uh, just to, to point out that I think you can get to the same place either way. Yeah. Yeah. Ben? I agree on that one, that, that it goes either way. It's interesting to think of uh, the weight of most English translations seems to be 
what we were used to, who for the joy, but that unique use of auntie, which one dictionary notes is translated for, but another dictionary never uses that as a possible translation. So I'm, what are they doing? But um, the other one, I, I think I've thought more about and, and uh, in your struggle against sin. And, and I agree with you, Tom, that, you know, it's possible to, that your struggle against the sin that's being done to you, but it just seems like in verse one, when it says, you know, the sin that so easily entangles you, and then he immediately, he's rebuking them. You've forgotten the encouragement. This is a, there's something that's happening because you haven't struggled. And, and, and I think you can see that's where the persecution connection comes in, that whatever's happening to them, maybe God's saying, I'm allowing that. This is a Job situation. I'm, I'm, you, you aren't seeing something that I'm seeing. And maybe it's your pride in persecution. Maybe it's, you're, you're just, you're, not, you're looking at anything but your sin. Um, Jesus said about sin, you got to gouge out your eye. You got to cut off your hand. Now, I, I understand he didn't actually mean cut off hands and gouge out eyes. Origin was wrong to emasculate himself all, but, but Jesus was pretty serious. And apparently these guys had, that, that's why without, because I think that's that, that one, it is two different angles and you struggle against the sin that's happening to you. But when he comes back with that quote from, what is it from Proverbs? Proverbs he's three. quoting from, you know, and, and the Lord rebukes you. Discipline, punishment. There's a lot of words there where it's saying you've got something you got to look at in your own heart. Uh, and maybe this persecution is going to cause you to do that, which is the verdict of history, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's in persecution, maybe that you see. It's in the division that Jesus pointed out in, in Luke 12 that maybe you see what you need to stand for. And you guys haven't quite stood there. And, and that fits with chapter 11, uh, that therefore. Um, I, I couldn't help but remember how chapter 11 ended. None of these guys received what they were promised. Not even Jesus, maybe you could say in a sense, if you connect our discussion with the other one. It doesn't look like he received anything good. He died a brutal, bloody death, but God planned something better so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Guys, that's what you need to have your eyes on. Not yourself, but the sin that entangles you, that Jesus untangled. So that's, as I look, that's why I kind of look at their personal sin there. But I, I don't think yours is false teaching, and I hope mine isn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think I think, I think I, either inside the uh, the pale of the church. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Uh, here's here's a question for you as preachers. Um, you know, often when we think of Hebrews twelve, there's so much in those first few verses uh, could occupy us uh, for a whole sermon, but um, our pericope is verses one through 13. So that whole section on submitting to the Lord's discipline and viewing discipline as rather than a sign of hate, a sign of love from our father. Um, how do you go about this or how have you gone about this? I, I suppose one option would be to say, you know what, there is so much for me uh, to talk about in say the first three verses I may narrow my text down and, and focus on that for my sermon. Um, but if you include all 13 verses, um, maybe give preachers some help. How do you connect the, the main chunks of thought uh, one to another? Um, so let's keep running with perseverance, um, fixing our eyes on Jesus, then the discipline section. Um, or how have you gone about this? Maybe just I'll leave it open like that. How have you gone about preaching this text? Have you narrowed the focus? Have you preached the entire pericope? Any thoughts on that, Tom? I'll admit that usually when I have preached this text, I think I've preached it three or four times along the course of the way, but 
Um, I've usually narrowed it, <laughs> kind of focused in on the first couple of verses. But that being said, I'm totally okay with you know, trying to, to, to tie them together. And I think um, maybe part of the way that you can do it is what you just uh, mentioned, Professor Mitchell, and that's um, the, the re-looking at what hardship and discipline is. The reminder that God disciplines those he loves and uh, that that's a truth that he already put out there in the Old Testament, that he has connected discipline with sonship, that he has connected uh, hardship and challenge with God showing his love to his children. Um, so the, the greatest love he shows to his, his children is Jesus, who comes and endures the cross. And now he's going to keep showing you love by allowing you to go through hardships and challenges. Why? Because that's going to help you to keep your eyes on Jesus. And it's going to help you keep looking at Jesus, the one who did endure the cross and did scorn and shame uh, because he loves you. And so I, I think that's a way that you could could make that that connection. Uh, ben, did you have a, a thought related to this? Yeah, I, I, uh, I you can't help but notice the word father and son showing up throughout this text, especially in verses five to ten. That just gets hammered home. And and so the the good news is whatever's happening here is a father dealing with sons. That's, that's an overall theme here. Everything, every bit of this, the, the good and the bad, Jesus coming, that's a father sending his son to save sons and the discipline. And I think that opens the door into the problem. That sin that's entangling them is this hatred of God's training and discipline, which is a hatred for their father. You, you really, it's not just that they don't see he's a father. We, we hate our father for what he's doing to us. We hate him for letting blood be shed. We, um, it, it, and so we tie ourselves up in all these burdens and weights and they're so easy to do. It's, it's not like it's a hard thing to do. It's an easy thing to do. So there becomes your problem. Uh, sons. So, so you got all the pictures of bad sons in scripture. You can, you can point to, it's really a hatred of father. Cause that's, that's really, um, when people try to explain why hell for sins, because the sin is treason against a king. It's disobedience of a father, and there's almost no worse sin than a son who cannot obey his father. So, so that seems, I think that kind of starts tying together the first three verses with this discipline that's coming. And I think uh, uh, John Bergman was talking about that as he summarized the text that these, this coach is, he's trying to encourage you, but, you know, I'm not getting a lot of encouragement from some of these guys because they're, they're heroes I can't match, or their ends were all terrible. I don't their games didn't end well. Coach, we got slaughtered. <laughs> I don't get this. Dad, you're doing a bad job, Dad. <laughs> right. Uh, John, did you mention? Yeah, Ben, I think that, that leads into a question that maybe flows throughout this text for the, the recipients of the, the book of Hebrews and, and the people sitting in your pews. <laughs> Is it worth it? Um, yeah, it, it's clear from all these sections of scripture we're looking at in the service that we're going to get persecuted and there's going to be division. And there's people sitting in your pews who can think of their adult children that don't talk to them anymore, who have become atheists now and walked away from their confirmation. But, you know, and, and people are going to be thinking probably the same thing that the original recipients who are wondering, you know, is this worth it? <laughs> and we've already got some encouragements, you know, from those who went before us. Yes, that cloud of witnesses is saying, yes, it's worth it. We've already got this encouragement in the first three verses, you know, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's with us. Don't worry, it'll be worth it. But then in this section, when we get into this, it's, it's worth it even because 
discipline is helping us. There's even positive, wonderful things, blessings coming forth in that, that we don't see. So, I mean, just in every verse here, it's kind of saying, trust God, this is all worth it. <laughs> um, it's yeah. going to work out for good. Right, right. Tom? Yeah, and Ben, you brought up the, the, the heroes of faith in chapter 11 and how uh, the, the end wasn't so great for them that they felt like they lost. Um, I might, can I suggest we twist that a little bit and go the opposite way? Um, these are, you know, this is the hall of fame of, uh, of, of, of Christianity of the old Testament Christianity. Their end was great. And they ended up in heaven. And, uh, and so that encouragement for these people who are going through the difficulty uh, on, on this side of eternity. And I think it becomes particularly helpful when you look at some of the people in that hall of fame of faith, uh, Gideon, boy, he made a mess out of some stuff. Samson's in the hall of faith. Seriously. Um, and, and so then for the people to be able to look at themselves and go, holy cow, if Samson can make it in the hall of fame of faith, I can too. I can too. And uh, God can include me in there and he can take me into his eternal glory. I think that can be used as a really cool encouragement for, uh, for the believers then and, and the believers, believers today. Right. Ben? Absolutely. Um, you just, they you just start running into an unending list of people you can talk about. I love that question, John Bergman. Is it worth it? And then just pick a guy. Was it worth it for Samson? He was blinded, beaten, mocked, worked almost to death, dragged in to be mocked one more time. Was it worth it when he put his hands on those columns one last time? I think it was. Was it worth it for Adam and Eve when they were exiled from the garden? Cain, when he was exiled, was it worth it? Was it worth it for uh, any of, of the guys from that list, was it worth it for that Canaanite mother, that unnamed Canaanite mother who had to deal with Jesus at his worst, it seems? Jesus the jerk, Jesus the, the chauvinist, Jesus the guy who says, I'm not going to help you at all. It was absolutely worth it. It's like you said, because in the end, there is heaven, the, the joy, one of the joys before Jesus to, to bring us into his kingdom, to make us sons. Is it worth it to suffer? Paul says, yeah, rejoice in suffering because it shows you the love of God that he pours out. Rejoice because it finally shows you. And again, this goes back to, if I'm going to pick verse four and, and harp on that, it's my sins. Rejoice in suffering because it finally shows me my sins for what they are and why I desperately need to fix my eyes on Jesus. See, I, I like that, John. Was it worth it? I, in fact, that was one of the, you know, you know my, my mocked up themes, a father worth my respect. You know, that, that I, that, that's, that's a good word. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've discussed the text quite a bit. We could keep going. I mean, there's so much in this text, but maybe uh, let's start to wind down and suggest some possible approaches to preaching the text. Um, I'll throw out a basic outline that I have used with this text, um, and I'd like to hear your uh, your guys' ideas too. Um, I chose as a theme, let's keep running the race. Um picking up on the image that's there early on in the section. And Tom, you said before the present tenses, uh, present tense, hortatory subjunctives, you've got them throughout Hebrews. It's kind of a hallmark in my mind of, of the book of Hebrews, and you have several here too. So I try to capture that. Let's keep running the race. You are running, keep on going, keep on moving. Um, and then I, as my kind of three main parts, let's keep running the race first of all, listening to those who ran before us. So that's the cloud of witnesses idea. And I kind of picked up on, um, hey, when we are uh, 
tiring um, when we feel we are tripping ourselves up as we run, go back and yeah, listen to those people in the hall of faith, um, especially the ones who struggled, uh, but God pulled them through to the finish line. So listening to those who ran before us, part one, part two, looking at the one who ran for us, looking at the one who ran for us, that's fixed. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, so putting it back to him and bringing out the, the strong gospel themes that we've been discussing there. Um, and then finally, learning from the father's discipline, learning from the father's discipline. And in that section, I used, uh, uh, since there's that athletic imagery early in the text, um, I kind of use that applied to the latter half of the text, um, thinking of like a trainer or a coach. And um, people who have been in, you know, highly competitive athletics, you, there are moments when you just hate your coach, right? Because he's the guy who's making me run and run and run and just making my life miserable. But why is he doing that? He, he knows that this is helping me. Um, so maybe using that as an illustration of the father's discipline that, that blesses us. Uh, so there's an idea, other ideas for um, preaching this text, or even if you're kind of just still um, not settled on one theme ideas, Tom? This isn't really a theme idea. It's more of an illustration idea. Um, and it's, it's based off of that beginning part of the text being surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses. And uh, I spent much of the, the, I spent 22 years down in Tennessee and in, in Tennessee football is just a huge deal. And what happens at the beginning of a football game is that the, the marching band makes a huge T on the field and then the players all run through the tee and the crowd goes wild. And I think that kind of captures the, the, the flavor of what the, the writer is saying. We've got this cloud of witnesses surrounding us, um, Harakaimai. And, um, and so imagine you're a freshman football player running out onto Newland Stadium's turf for the first time. And up in the field, up in the stands are some of the great volunteers from the past, Reggie White and Peyton Manning and yada, 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 all the, the, the great players from the past, um, General Neyland, and et cetera. Imagine how excited you're going to be. Imagine how motivated you're going to be as they're saying, hey, you can do it. Fight on. Go get them. Give it your best. You're going to be just motivated, encouraged. And we have to be careful that we don't get weird on this. It's not like Moses and Elijah, et cetera, are looking down at us going, hey, Tom, you can do it. But that's kind of the feeling that God, I think, wants us to have that we're the ones who are on the field at this point. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Uh, but who's up in the quote-unquote stands cheering for us? Wow, it's guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and all those, and Abel and all those Old Testament heroes of faith and all the other ones who don't get mentioned in chapter 11 are kind of there pushing us on. And maybe it's our, our, our sainted moms and dads or grandpas and grandmas or a sainted pastor or something like that. And the thought I think that God wants us to have is they're up in the stands cheering you on and go get them. And most importantly, who is cheering you on? Jesus himself. That Jesus himself is saying, you can do this because I got you. And I just think it's a really cool illustration that kind of helps us get the the, the feel of the text, at least it helps me get the feel of the text. 
Great examples, yeah. Um, John or Ben, any any thoughts to guide preachers here as far as a structure of a sermon or basic outline, John? Um, well, I guess Tom got me going on that on that picture, <laughs> athletic picture a little bit, but um, yeah, that that's you know the, the big crowd is a pretty cool one. I think of a, a member I once had who was in uh, Olympic training, and she would get up at four thirty in the morning, and it's still dark, and she's just isolated and alone wondering if is it worth it no one else is really getting up with her but she had posters around her bedroom of former olympic champions and she would look at this great cloud of witnesses around her and say okay i'm getting out of bed and then she'd drive to her training facility and on the way there she's gulping down this awful green smoothie filled with protein powder or something weird and she passes by a chick-fil-a that has biscuits and gravy at the drive-thru and the starbucks with the frappuccino that could so easily entangle and trip her up in her training regimen, but she, she passes by. She gets to the training facility and her coach works her out for like two and a half hours. And she almost thinks that he's the enemy. He almost appears the enemy, but she knows better that the discipline she's going through is, is for her good. And, and she knows the end goal. You know, that, that athletic theme plays out for us too, right? God seems like the enemy at times, but he's not. He's disciplining for us, us for our good and that crowd of witnesses around us just playing off on that athletic illustration Tom came up with yeah yeah uh yeah uh related to that this is um I I had noted it the 2016 Olympics um uh there was a woman Ethiopian runner in uh, the steeplechase, uh, 3,000 meters. The steeplechase is the weird one with all the obstacles and you go through the, jump through the pool of water and over everything. Um, she got tangled up with somebody and bent one of her, her spikes, her cleats on one of her shoes. And um, so in the middle of the race, the Olympic race, she took off one of her shoes and ran the rest of the race with one bare foot. Um, and that, that has come to mind when I thought of, you know, let's throw off the sin that so easily entangles, you know, what, Whatever is tripping you up um, as we follow, um, that's the dedication that uh, the writer is urging us to here. Um, so another possible illustration you've got there. Any, any further thoughts um, as we think about this, Ben? Yeah, we can go on and on with these analogies of the team, the team, the team, the core, the core, the core. And, and, and we can rightly direct our people to a Lutheran view of the saints, right? The Augsburg Confession tells us their examples to imitate. Um, it even suggests they may even be praying for us. So we're never told to pray for them, but there they are. Our liturgy talks about them. You know, with all the saints on earth and hosts of heaven, we praise your holy name and join their glorious song. Uh, there's the analogy, um, or the, it's not an analogy. I've, I've heard, I've been told that the, the, the half circle communion rail, in, especially in, in Scandinavian churches, is meant to be the circle is completed in the cemetery that's behind the altar out there. And, and I think that can turn our eyes because a lot of our themes, I think, are going to be, you know, uh, like that. And I think that image of a coach, you know, um, you know rub some Christ on it. Uh, Christians say, bring it on, uh, get up. And, and we can do that rightly, but we have to turn the eyes, you know, especially as we think of where are these saints standing in the presence of Christ, the one who's gone before us where they're standing at the, the, the altar to receive the body and blood of Christ. And that's, that's where we get two more of those unique words in Hebrews, Christ, the beginner, Christ, the completer, you know, he's the coach that he, he put us on the team. He picked us for the team. We're only on the team because Christ did it. He began a thing and he's the one holding us on the team. He's 
one keeping us on. He did all the work. He, he endured the cross. He, he actually played the whole game. <laughs> we aren't even doing much playing in this game. We're kind of, we're kind of, I, I played a lot of basketball where I was like the seventh wheel out there on the floor. I'm watching the guys score baskets and I'm on, I guess I got to be on the floor here. And that, that's Jesus doing all this work. And, and so it's almost like the saints are more whispering Jesus into our ears. You know, if I can dare use a Harry Potter analogy, I, I think of um, in the last book, when he opens the last, you know, the, the hallow of the resurrection stone and what does it turn out to be all those who Voldemort killed and they're there with Harry, encouraging him on to the end. Um, Harry being the Jesus-like figure for J.K. Rowling, if we're going to stress stress things here. But that's what the saints are doing. They're kind of whispering in our ears, just like Moses and Elijah did for Jesus. Your exodus is coming. You can endure this. You need to endure this. Uh, Christ has already endured all these things for you. These saints who are cut in two, you know, he has endured all these things. So it's a, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I love sports as much as the next man, but the sports analogy, you know, it, we could easily get into, you know, you got to you gotta pick yourself up a little bit. It's no, you've got to let Jesus do all this work. It's Jesus. Uh, I've been reading Bo Yertz uh, for an assignment. You know, it's Jesus when we start. It's Jesus when we finish. It's Jesus alone. That's, that's the beginning and the middle and the end of all of this here. Yeah, Jesus, absolutely. Tom? And it is interesting to go back to the Greek for just a minute. One of the perfect tenses in this text is in verse 2. Uh, where it talks about how Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, yeah. that his work of salvation is done, <laughs> and that it is done for you, and it's done for me, and it's done for the world. And uh, so, so I, I love your thought, Ben. It makes total sense to me. I, I second. Oh, good. I was going to say, I second that, Ben, just uh, that it's not Jesus, it's just example. Why can't we be more like Jesus? But in that very verse that Tom mentioned, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. <laughs> it, it is done. It is done. It is done. Yeah, Ben. And now, and so now we're bringing in those other verses. I, I look back, I've preached on this text twice, and it was both times verses one to three. And I don't think I purposely left out the others. I think it's just one to three we're called for. But, but now it's, and God so desperately wants you to die well. And that's, he wants you to finish well. And so it's that Lenten him who dies in faith dies well. And that's only in Christ. He's driving us to all of this. I, um, in one of his novels, Boyer, uh, it's, it's the Knights of Rhodes. So all these, these Christian knights are fighting off the Muslim um, uh, invaders uh, on the island of Rhodes. And this, the, the Grand Master can't figure out what these bad things, some terrible things that happened. And he's got the, the good priest who, who's helping him out. And, and, and the good priest talks about, um, or the, the Grand Master says, is God doing all this stuff? It, it must be God. Bad things are happening. Or did the devil do it? And the priest says, well, maybe it was both of them. Well, that, that's impossible. And then he uses the chess analogy. God and the devil play chess. We're pieces and, and um, we can't see all the moves. And sometimes God is making a move uh, that just looks terrible to us, but he's, he's putting something else in check. He's putting the devil into check. Um, and so both God and the devil are, are, at, are working here, just like in Job. Mm -hmm. And after 37 chapters, God said to Job and his friends, you guys have no idea what you were talking about. And there's a little bit of that here in that verse five. You've forgotten. You guys have forgotten about Jesus. You've forgotten about the entangling sin. You've forgotten about what suffering is about. You've forgotten about dying well. This is about getting to heaven. So what you said before, Tom, it's about getting to heaven. That's the good end that all these saints had before. Yeah, yeah, Tom. But it, it doesn't seem as if, you know, when you get to verse four, that he's saying, 
you've totally forgotten because in verse three, he says, lest you become weary and lose heart. They, they're apparently still going, but there's a danger as there is for every believer. There is always a danger that we would grow, grow, grow weary and lose heart. So keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author yeah. and perfecter of your faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Great shake. Yep. I think the book of Hebrews as, you know, that hand hanging onto the edge of the cliff, I think some of these believers were in that state. So Jesus says, keep on, the writer says, keep on hanging on and Jesus fixing our eyes on him. Of course, the key to everything. Um, so, well, let's leave it there. Uh, but great discussion today. Hopefully this will be a, a great help uh, to preachers as they wrestle with this text. Uh, John, Ben, Tom, thank you very much, and God's blessings to all you preachers as you proclaim this beautiful gospel to your people.